Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. Every week, the three of us call in and record a conversation about the larger scope of design and everything related. Here we go. Gentlemen, how was your week? Fantastic. Birthday Day of America. That's all I have to say to yeah. you. Did you do anything? July 4th. Do anything over the 4th? We have a uh, we have a pretty awesome roof porch here in Baltimore, um, and this is actually a big year for Baltimore because it's the it's the bicentennial of the beginning of the War of eighteen twelve, which is when the Star Spangled Banner was written, and it's pretty much the only significant contribution Baltimore has made to a military engagement of the United States. Big so, news, yeah. So the city is really going all out to try and capitalize on that, get a lot of tourists in. Um, so anyway, we have a really cool roof porch, and we watched all these amateur and non-amateur fireworks uh, pretty much all night you know, from all directions, which was kind of cool. It was nice. Huh. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I feel like I'm totally immune to Fourth of July things now because it's just about avoiding people coming to New York to see fireworks. So <laughs> I just uh, went to Spider-Man IMAX, which was actually pretty cool. Wow. I'm, I feel like I would not normally go to a 3D IMAX thing because it's just a cheap, ex- uh, you know, easy excuse to charge me a lot more money, but... It was cool, and I avoided fireworks, which was great. Wow. I actually feel the opposite about both those things. IMAX is the only time I ever feel okay spending money on a movie, because it's like, if you go to a regular theater, it's like you could have that in your house, but 3D IMAX, that's a different experience. I'm okay paying for that. And I was going to say, this is actually the first year that I haven't really been immune to the July 4th thing. I felt, I felt, a little, I felt some patriotism this year, more than usual. Um, I don't know what it is. I guess it's, you know, it's been thing. like a year. It's been like, it's been like a year since I started a business. And the business is going fine, which is exciting. I feel like I felt warm and fuzzy feelings towards America. So, so your like initial it. reaction was blowing off a limb and going, America? Yeah, I actually became a Republican just <laughs> overnight. I saw those things exploding in the sky, and I was like, of course. Uh-huh. Gay people shouldn't get married. It all makes so much sense now. <laughs> I didn't know fireworks had so much to do with that. Yeah, man. Uh, America. Someday you'll realize too, Matt. Someday you'll you'll see something explode in the sky, and it'll, it'll dawn on you, and you'll, you'll get it, and you'll understand. Yeah. Hmm. Suddenly Mitt Romney will make sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> wow. I say on to the first topic. What do yeah, you say? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go to the top of the dock. Um, let's see. The first thing we have to talk about this week was actually, I want to talk about this. I know I tweeted this at you, Matt. Um, was this Microsoft rebrand that sort of made the rounds. Uh, this, this person on this minimally minimal blog. Yep. Uh, a rebranding of Microsoft that involves a sort of like slant, which is supposed to be a window in perspective from the ground. Um, they're calling the slate. Uh, and, and overall, I mean, I, I t- tweeted at you because I know you and I in the past have talked about uh, sort of the futility and silliness of doing these sort of fake branding projects for huge, immense brands with tons of complications and how you know sort of frivolous they are. But overall, it seemed like some really excellent work. I actually did think this was one of the few... Um redesigns where it did it was seemed thoughtful which is maybe the number one complaint about every redesign ever yeah. is that it's not thoughtful but yes. you know i don't think it's flawless i just think it was it was well done it was well thought out you could tell it's thought out because he included a picture of a board with lots of pieces of paper taped up to yeah. it yeah and no, that's always true you can either yeah. that or if you include a, a close-up of a sketch at an angle Oh, depth to of obscure field. all depth information. Of field. Yes. Yeah, shallow depth of field, obscure all information about the sketch. But as long as you can see it's pencil on paper, then that means you worked hard on Golden. it. Hey, this guy put in. This guy put in the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he even took a picture. Also, another of it. really great way to show off a typeface. Show if you want to show off a new typeface, shallow depth of field at an angle, and put it on dribble. By the way, <laughs> right next to your weather. Yeah, app. exactly. But I thought um, the you know it's really solid, really well thought out. 
but there are you know there are some things the slate the the slate was seemed so obscure though yeah. that it's I, I you know who doesn't like the trick of tracing something on a photo pulling it out and calling it an icon <laughs> but I don't think anyone would ever really know to know where that came from if you didn't have a long explanation beforehand yeah um, looking at it like because I'm looking at it right now I think the thing that bugs me is that that is really abstract but then he also matched it with a bunch of just kind of ambient pictures so it feels very right. like the whole fe- thing feels very well done very polished but it feels very vacant I, I, yeah i don't know that there's a whole lot of meaning to put it in on star backgrounds and uh solar system backgrounds i guess there's some also like metropolis backgrounds but yeah yeah they're definitely like kind of generic photos what do they really mean yeah i think part of this is definitely the polish of the overall like rebranding is really excellent, and so I don't want to get distracted by the craft and not actually be critical about the the work itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually feel like the the slate uh, element that he caught with is actually working really well for me because it's it references both the sort of history of the Windows logos, which always had these sort of square elements that were either being you know distorted like a flag or you know shown in perspective or just shown straight. Um, and I get a lot of things from it, not just the window, but also like a screen on an angle or you know a computer key. Um, and so in that sense, the abstraction is sort of working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's interesting what you said, Matt, about the fact that I don't think you said no one would get it. Um, I, I agree with you. I don't think anyone would, would get the sort of uh, depth that he's explored um, and the etymology of this shape um, from looking at it. Do you think that's an important part of a successful brand that's, that people get it? I think if you're if you're trying to design a mark that has a meaning, I do think that's uh, important to a degree. I don't think everyone has to get it, and I don't think it has to be like universally understood if you did a focus group. Um, but I do think that bringing bringing it to this level of abstraction, it's almost like things like marks like this have existed for so long that it's it almost seems like that space is filled. Um, and I guess you could kind of browbeat your way there, but. I, I do think that's important. I, I, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I just I, I always go back and forth on that myself because you know there's so many things that once you start studying branding and really studying you know the art of making a logo, uh, you're exposed to all sorts of logos you've seen your entire life but never really truly got until someone shows you the actual you know thing. Like you, someone shows you the arrow in the FedEx logo and you're, of course you see it you know everywhere now but you never saw that before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I always sort of wonder how important it is that people really understand the idea behind it uh, or just that you know it, it works. Right. And the other thing I try to think about too is or, or I try to try to at least temper myself in designer bullshit. There is a lot like when I was talking about the um just drawing a window on a photo, pulling it out and and showing somebody that. That's a powerful way to make the connection and anyone yeah. who sees those two things together is going to get it. But that's not always going to be with you in showing off the logo. And it can't yeah. be. It's that, that's not that mm-hmm. doesn't make for a good logo. Yeah, it's got Um so. and you know, I try to do that with hopefully I try to do that in my own life too where I I try to ask myself if I'm if I'm trying to bullshit somebody, and if I am, I wouldn't like to think I'll I'll stop and change direction, or at least explain myself better, or put you know kind of make the logo more understandable. And I think maybe this mark suffers from that. One of the most impressive things for me about the whole brand was just um, so many people rebrand something when they just think that it needs an aesthetic like facelift, um, but it seems that the person behind this actually took the time to consider. Microsoft's position in the market and how their brand is currently portrayed and saw a need for a change on a much broader scale, which could be represented by a rebranding, mm-hmm. which I think was really intelligent because 
And it actually, it's it's kind of like the No Canada presentation we saw last week, where it's like a really solid example of a designer's presentation, and it actually does a really good job of selling you on something. Um, and that, I'll give it props for that. It is, does a very good job of that. I don't even necessarily agree with some of the logic of it. Like, I don't think the the story of the Windows logo and, and pointing out what might be wrong with the Windows 8 logo, like, I, I definitely disagree with that. But it does a really good job of kind of like telling, telling a story, building up kind of meaning to the things it's it's creating and then giving you some payoff with you know well-rendered objects showing it in context showing it in uh not not just context of the brand but context of these renderings it's very thoughtful like i said originally one thing that kind of bugs me about this because i've been kind of staring at these things for a few minutes um is that like looking at the progression everything kind of feels not expected, but, you know, once you see the outcome, like the newest one for Windows 8, it just kind of feels like it, it's still a part of the family where, like, the slate feel, it, it feels a lot different. And I think the thing that bugs me the most about it is that um, you could tell that Microsoft is really trying to still promote, like, a consumer sort of uh, aesthetic. So it's something that's a little bit more friendly and... Uh, a little bit more inviting, but the slate just feels so cold. It's almost like it. That sort of mentality is like, oh, it, this is only for tech people. There is there's the other part of it where the packaging seems so clearly influenced by Apple that it almost could be mistaken for an Apple product mm. on first glance. I don't know if you guys felt that way when you if you if you like look at the Surface tablet and the Surface phone packaging. Yeah. It's like this Frutiger influenced typeface. Mm-hmm. It's the product shot with a lot of white background. And the mark used very simply, which is, I mean, in some ways it's just good design, but in other ways it's clearly taking its cues from an Apple product. And I don't think you're going to win a battle by copying the competition. I think you're going to win the battle by outwitting, out-innovating, uh, out-creating the competition, I would hope. Yeah. I mean, can you think of an example of someone someone winning a battle by just copying better? Well, I mean, there's Samsung. They make a crap ton of money. Zynga? <laughs> Oh yeah, Zing. Oh god, don't get me started. <laughs> Everything I take Zing it back. Has ever done? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think unfortunately, I mean, I, I wish that that was the case that you couldn't win the battle by by copying. Yeah. Um, and this doesn't necessarily apply to Microsoft, obviously, but I think there's a lot of examples of people, especially in technology, that uh, copy either better or worse, but in a situation where they have more uh, resources or more of a network or a, a better way to get something out there, they can you know squash uh, smaller developers or designers and their ideas by just replicating them and taking advantage of existing systems that already benefit them. Mm. Zynga being the prime example of that. I guess I should rephrase the question is, has anyone ever beaten a huge company by copying their (laughs) model? I don't think so, no. no. This is America, Matt. You you never beat the big company. That's not how it works. Oh, man, I get too idealistic sometimes. I can't believe I asked that question. (laughs) Wow. In, in, In a beautiful future, maybe. Someday. Second on the dot is talks about the London Shard. It just debuted, I guess, being you know officially complete, and um, kind of two sides of the discussion. One where you know obviously this is a very large building, very modernist building, which is beautiful, but it's also in a city that is very flat and very old. So it's you know the the, the basics of it is that it's big contrast on what that thing is and what it's surrounded by. And how citizens are kind of in an uproar because of that, because it's taken away from the the London feel, and then also architects 
and some other people on the other side saying, well, this is kind of a tap to the future. And I think to give it a, to give it a little bit more background, it's this. It's called the shard because it's designed to look like a shard of glass, and we'll post a link to so you can take a look mm-hmm. at it. And it's designed by Renzo Piano. And one thing Dan you said was that it's this modernist building, and I actually I'm going to disagree with you. It's I don't think it's a modernist building. I think it's a contemporary oh, building. Yeah. It's not. It's it is not a like a Mies van der Rohe skyscraper that's very rectangular, very blocky, mm. without expression. It's very expressionistic. It's this tapered thing that looks like somebody even explained it like a sailboat. Mm. And it is it's very elegant and it is is very beautiful. I think the problem everybody's having with it is mostly the context of yeah. it. Yeah. Well I mean it's a huge uh departure from everything else around it. I mean this is the part of London that you know there's extremely old buildings and then there's this thing that literally towers above everything else and it is and it's also like the tallest building now in western europe which is significant for as you you know you describe london as flat it's very flat and this is going to be it's a departure in architecture it's a departure in scale it's just wildly different for for people living there and i guess what this brings up is the the kind of the marching forward of technology the marching forward of design the marching forward of aesthetics and then the kind of historic preservation, people liking things the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about this in, amongst branding, and I'm, uh, it definitely would have come up in the Microsoft brand, people getting upset about just something changing. But what do you guys think in the context of cities, like the the difference between preserving something or allowing something to move into the future? I think it all depends on location, as, as shallow as that sounds, because I think I saw a comment somewhere saying that if that happened in New York City, you know, it it wouldn't have had been that controversial because, you know, there's a lot of other tall buildings that that's exactly what New York city is, but, uh, putting it smack dab in the middle of something that, uh, for all intents and purposes feels ancient for a lot of people. There's part of me that's like, Oh, you know, they're progressing. There's, there's new architecture. This is great. But on the other side, it's like, are they going to just start smashing down other buildings for the sake of having, new buildings to complement the shard. Well, I mean, did they destroy any historical architecture or landmarks to put this building up? They demolished an office tower from the 70s, but it's more that they're obscuring existing architecture. Like, there's there's worries that it's obscuring cathedrals and it's uh, obscuring houses of parliament, um, and it's kind of... People have called it, like, a slash on the, the skyline or the face of London because it's such a, a prominent thing in the skyline that, it, you know, it hasn't been part of this historical understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's always people that sort of respond that way. And the first thing I think of is um, I listened to an episode of 99% Invisible where they were talking about the, the Transamerica Tower in San Francisco, uh, which is a very similarly shaped building, actually, in the fact that it's just sort of a you know pyramid uh, pointing up to the sky, and it's exceptionally large. Um, and when it, when it was built in San Francisco, whenever that was, uh, everyone in the city you know was outraged, and the Architecture Society of San Francisco wrote letters to the city and said it was a disgrace and all this sort of stuff. And then there was uh, somebody he was Roman was talking to an architect in modern day, which I think is you know I think it's been around for twenty or thirty years. And the architect was admitting that you know even though everyone was you know frustrated with it at the time, that it actually was you know it's a nice building now and it's a, it does a great thing for the skyline. And it gives it a really strong personality and how people at the time just couldn't accept the change and couldn't accept this uh, this you know big difference in what they were used to. But in actuality, he now understands and accepts the building for, for what it is. This, I guess this is something I always go back and forth on in my own head about, like, do you really need to, to ease so slowly into change? Or do you just need to remember that people have very short memories, just go for it, 
and see what happens. Like, and not that you can't, not that you shouldn't be doing it thoughtfully. Of course, you have to do it thoughtfully and, and try to plan for what's best for whether it's what's best for the city, what's best for you, what's best for the company, what's best for the town, whatever the context is. But you can't please everyone, and or or even if you're going to piss off everyone, some things need to change. And I, as much as I want to say. W- I'd like to preserve things and allude to things history. I think ultimately sometimes you just have to make the leap. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you. Um, I wouldn't want to live in a place that was uh, too afraid of upsetting the status quo or obscuring, you know, some tradition uh, to take a step forward. And you look at some of the most interesting architecture being done in the world right now, and my understanding is a lot of it is in the Middle East and in Dubai and in, you know, the UAE, uh, where they don't have the same sort of uh, tradition and the same already existing infrastructures that they're worried about upsetting. And it, it's kind of a shame that that ways that, that would prevent people from innovating and doing beautiful, interesting things uh, in any field. You know, that actually makes me think about kind of the difference between something like, you know, that building or, you know, going to big cities and that sort of thing. And the flip side of being like Savannah, Georgia, where it, it becomes to a point where it stays so flat and become so old that it just turns into a tourist trap. And Savannah is a good example of a place that's been very well preserved. Um, but there have been examples of, of contemporary architecture slipping in there and working very well. Mm-hmm. The Jepson is an example of um, – Andy, if you're not familiar, the Jepson is an art museum designed by Moshe Softy. And it mm-hmm. is a really beautiful building, very contemporary looking, but it also fits very well into the context of Savannah, mm-hmm. which – I know that there were a lot of people that would have disagreed with that. Uh, at sure, I'm sure at the beginning of its its construction and even uh, years later. But it's just one of those things that it has to be able to exist in order for us to continue living in contemporary society. Otherwise, I don't know. It, the, I mean, the other end is being Amish. It, I don't. <laughs> I can't see it being a practical way to live. It preserving everything. I would. I think I'm always going to end up on the side of of knock it down and build something new and innovative than um, preserve everything. Sure. Yeah. And there's, a, there's not an incredible, that it has to be extreme, but yeah, there's an incredible beauty too, I think in, uh, in a balance of having traditional architecture and traditional buildings and landmarks and mixing that with contemporary uh, stuff. Uh, my alma mater, Micah in, in the middle of a very historic neighborhood in Baltimore, it can consistently builds extremely, you know, contemporary glass angular buildings that, you know, are totally unique and interesting but they fit in the neighborhood because, you know, it says something about Micah's stance uh, in the art design world. Uh, and the one main building on campus is, you know, exceptionally old and it has a nice combination of the oldest building in the neighborhood and, and the newest building. Uh, and it works. Uh, and it works, I think, because it's authentic and because they're, you know, cognizant of the community in which they're building in. But they're not being overly precious with, you know, preserving the, the curb appeal of the neighborhood uh, and keeping it feeling like it's straight out of the 1800s. I always go back and forth too on the the idea of timeless versus trendy. And ultimately I'd love to see if we can ever end up with something that is truly timeless, but it seems so difficult to to come up with something that's not trendy but also innovative. And I'm sure obviously there have been examples throughout time, but it seems so challenging to understand what that means in your own context and especially in your own neighborhood. Yeah, a neighborhood is something that's intensely personal and intimate with people. Uh, this is you know, this is the kind of situation where you get people that are not designers that are going to be outspoken about issues of design, uh, which is uh, not too common, honestly. There are very few people that are going to you know throw a fit when IKEA changes their typeface, but when you go to put a building in someone's neighborhood, you're going to get some opinions. Yeah, 
my biggest, my big, was my biggest opinion idea. about the whole building is just that the name the Shard is. I, I can't, I can't support that even a little bit. It's <laughs> well, it, it sounds a lot like the Shard. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was terrible. my first thought, uh, which <laughs> which is a little I mean, maybe it's telling about uh, you and I, Dan. But that was it. Also, seems like it makes it a one liner to me. Like right. yes, the building looks like a big you know spiky you know pointy piece of shiny glass, but. To name it the shard of glass just seems like you're accepting the novelty of it instead of trying to give it a richer sort of brand. Oh, um, see, I I actually really like it. I like that it um, alludes to its creation. It alludes to what it or it, it explains what it's alluding to, and it sounds. I mean, I like that it has a kind of contemporary name rather than trying to cover it up and say uh, it just has an address name or it has some name that makes it sound kind of historic to to play it down. And it sure beats the hell out of the gherkin. That's, I would, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that was a thing either until you mentioned that in that tweet. Oh, yeah, totally. I looked that building up, and that's even worse. Yeah, you'd, better than being named after a pickle. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, I don't think I know of any building with a really great name I can think of. Most buildings are, like you said, they're an address or they're some company that sponsored it. Uh, so I, I guess the fact mm-hmm. that they decided to give the building a unique name should be good enough they just made the effort yeah just something other than something that reminds me of a fart gone terribly wrong the uh the launch of the ipad how many jokes were made i do remember that actually and how that totally yeah. no one thinks about that anymore at i know all. it is completely evaporated no pun intended um but <laughs> <laughs> that's not how that works Matt. but oh, yet yeah, no these these things come like You'll have a couple of jokes right away, and it'll pass. I guess. I guess there there could be some examples where it'll never pass because it's such a bad name. But I don't think this is one of those. I'm sure people are making those jokes right now. Yeah. They'll forget about them. Yeah. This, this will probably stick. I'm just being grumpy about it. I know. You. I didn't get much sleep. <laughs> I'm just grumpy. Old man Mangold's going at it again. Get off my lawn, you kids! Speaking of get off my lawn, the, one of the other articles that ties into this is the future of the New York Public Library. Did you guys get a chance to read this? Yeah, I, I did take a peek at that article. I'll, since I brought it up, I'll, I'll explain a little bit. The idea is that the New York Public Library has decided that they're going to start taking some of the books out of their stacks, moving them to a climate-controlled place in New Jersey, and kind of renovating it. I, I believe their tagline was, or people rather than books which is interesting. It makes a lot of people cry out that this is just going to become this internet cafe to like kind of replace the Starbucks where people can come hang out and check their email as opposed to do serious research. But of course, I haven't really seen the part where anyone offers a reasonable solution to a place that had mentioned that its its funding keeps going down like 25% every year and it doesn't get a cut from the government and it doesn't have like an endowment like universities would. I don't really see a, a, anyone proposing a better solution, but I do see a lot of complaining. I got to be honest; that yeah. sounds like a wonderful plan to me. Like libraries, I mean, yes, like this is this is ties right into the conversation of preserving history uh, and tradition. And there's definitely something to be said for the history and tradition of a library, but there's also something to be said for the fact that the practical use of a library has been almost, if not completely, eclipsed and replaced by the internet and modern technology. For them to sort of adjust their their mission and say. Let's make this about the people that are here instead of, you know, the books. I think it's wonderful. And I, I would love to see this, you know, public space taken advantage of and, and reappropriated and used in new and interesting ways. If they kept the building, that's one thing. Because, I mean, tearing that down would be... And that, that is not a proposal at all, just to be I, clear. Yeah, yeah. And the I proposal on the, the table is to tear is... down the building, burn all the books for warmth. <laughs> you, get a lot of, you get a lot of BTUs out of Moby Dick. It's a lot of pages. <laughs> it's a hefty book. 
No, I mean, as long as that is not part of the equation, like, I'm okay with it because I... I can't remember the last time I even needed a library. So, you know, the, the fact that it's mostly for research and, you know, there's all the wonderful archives of photos and all the other stuff that's not exactly in book form, that's awesome. But if you could still get to that stuff, great. If it's climate controlled and, like, preserved well. Actually, that is that is one thing that people haven't really brought up. Um, the articles that I've read have mentioned it is that they're being moved from the stacks, which currently exist under Bryant Park, to or under the building and under Bryant mm-hmm. Park to a climate controlled space in New Jersey, which actually means that the books are preserved for longer. The the challenge is, of course, that people mm-hmm. can't get the books immediately. They'll have to wait. People are worried they're going to have to wait two to three days. The library says it's going to be twenty four hours, so we, uh, one would assume it's somewhere in between there. But they are actually being preserved for longer, which I think is possibly better. I know a lot of scholars will be upset that they can't get their books so quickly. But it also, I feel like we should maybe shift our conversation to why are we not digitizing these books faster and looking into copyright law and looking into Google Books and getting that project started again and and yes, being reasonable those, yes. human beings and stop hemming and hawing about our legal rights when we're preventing people from accessing knowledge, which has been like this goal for eternity and we finally are capable of it, but we're worried about it because we might make a little bit less money on it. No, and, and, and I, I agree completely, and I, I do totally understand the perspective of the people that, you know, this depresses them, the thought of the fact that the books aren't going to be readily available at the library, the idea of going to the library to, you know, do research, and, like, is a, it's a romantic idea, and so I, I understand the, the loss of that and people wanting to sort of hold on to it, but I do think it's a fool's mission to try and say we want to preserve this lifestyle and this uh, culture when, you know, the world's moving on. And I also think there, you know, it, it, it may not even be romantic for some. Some people, some people are still using it as a very practical resource. But there's also there's just not the answer. Like, well, where is this money coming from to to keep paying the people to fetch the books to keep to keep these facilities up to keep the library open when like funding just keeps going down? Maybe in a shocking turn of events, Amazon will just start throwing money into the public library system <laughs> then they'll digitize it have it on uh you know their their hosting space and every three months it'll go down and the world will turn itself inside out <laughs> that was a really good point about the whole digitization stuff i mean it's perfectly feasible at this point it, even if it's just a crappy scanner doing a bunch of you know like photocopies that's still better than those things just sitting there and collecting dust and eroding away because eventually, you know, those things aren't going to be books anymore. It's just going to be, you know, piles of dust. So we might as well do something before they eventually do, you know, what everything does and just kind of evaporates. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not like the, um, the halting has been that, you know, we can't just share these already digitized books. The halting has been the actual digitization of the books, which seems crazy to me. Like, Let's just move forward, get everything done, and we'll figure out the legal stuff later. Obviously, Walt Disney mm-hmm. stopped us from doing that, whatever, close to 100 years ago. But <laughs> I, I just can't yeah. believe that, that, that the advancement of human knowledge is going to be stopped by stupid U.S. copyright right law. They've stopped a lot of things. They've got, they got a rich history. It's going to be wonderful yeah. in the future when aliens come down. And first we'll tell them the story of, uh, of emperors conquering nations, burning their libraries— And then they'll say, well, what about in the future when people had access to everything and they could have access to every piece of information? They said, well, there's this guy named Walt Disney, and he drew this cartoon mouse once. And because of that, (laughs) we actually – we lost every book in the apocalypse. It was his cartoon mouse, and you can't have it. (laughs) 
side note, have you guys ever yeah. seen a video of one of the uh, those amazing book scanners that scanned, you know, old books? Yeah, they're really they're awesome. the most beautiful machines. I love them with the with the vacuum, <laughs> that the suction vacuum arm that pulls up a page and then the vertical scanner it like scans it in like a second and then it keeps turning the pages. Oh, beautiful. Dean needs some time for yourself. I I store that away for later, Dan. I, I got that. I got that on lockdown. Don't you worry. Okay. All right. To, to bring it back a little bit, I am really interested about the idea of what libraries could become in the future because I think we're all in agreement as just like being forward thinking and not trying to be too attached to what currently exists in the world that the current idea of a library where you go to a place to get a book is obsolete and it's not coming back. So we have these yeah. amazing buildings. We have these amazing spaces that are really – that are open to people coming and being a part of them. And we're not using them to the best of our abilities. At, and yeah, at the and same time, and they're staffed. And at the same time, we're getting further apart. We're spending less time with each other. The communities that we have seem to be breaking down. We just, I, I feel like there's this, this cry from people for like creating new communities at, at the same time that we're ignoring these, these spaces of public gathering. And we're just not making this mm. connection. Do you, do you guys have a similar no. feeling? Like, did you have a similar feeling reading this article? You know, I, I agree completely. It seems like a huge opportunity for a, a wonderful thing. I mean, these spaces are, in many ways, sort of going to waste. I, I'll be totally honest and say I've been in Baltimore for five years now, five five and a half years, and I've never been to any of the public libraries in the city. And there's, a you know, many, many branches of them. There's a few, a couple blocks from me. I've never had a reason to go. There's never been a compelling event there. There's never been anything that really drew me in. And I would love for them, yeah. like, this, it's a huge missed opportunity to, like, have this unbiased public space that you could share with people in the community, which is actually, in a lot of ways, what libraries have always been. They've always been a place for sort of exchanging and intermingling of ideas. It used to be that, you know, books and texts were the conduit for those ideas, but now we're sort of, you know, moved beyond that, and it can be people. Well, yeah, I think people are kind of in an uproar, though, because the solution proposed so far is, like, a, a Starbucks, because they're so abundant and that sort of vibe is all over the place, I could see why people are pissy about it. I just, I, I almost feel like there should be a better idea for a, a community space other than just a coffee shop. I know. I think absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think part of it too is like Starbucks is a really easy way to downplay anything, right? Like anytime you talk about uh, making a place for public access to internet or something, people are just going to immediately say, oh, so it's some dumb internet cafe. Which any any library converting to that could absolutely become that. Nobody's saying it's not. Like it could just become a place for kids to come and update their Facebook statuses, and you know maybe maybe we're all culturally fucked, and that's the only thing possible. But I think there is the opportunity uh -huh. for if everybody's so upset about this and everybody is looking for this place to to come together and they and they love these public spaces. I I think we can love these public spaces beyond the books or the artifacts that they've been attached to previously. Yeah, ready. Here, here's a crazy idea. Well, so first of all, I think it'd be great if you know the New York Public Library system and other libraries that are going through similar shifts right now would you know straight up open up the floor to proposals. Like take take proposals from from anybody in the community for what they should do with these assets in public space and see what the ideas the community oh. has. That's a good way to get ownership over the space from the community instead of trying to impose something on them, you know, from outside force. But so how about this? How about this? Libraries are. Now, the only place in the world where you can't get internet. Internet is illegal in libraries now. And that's the place you go to do all your non-internet activities. Just, just board games and what else doesn't use the internet anymore? A, a toaster. What, what, if, what if they became like just sanctuaries from the crazy like social media 
nonstop email world we live in. It's just libraries with no cell phone service, no internet. It's just like a sanctuary from the future. That actually, it is an interesting See, idea I'm, because there are essentially what you're describing is what a church has been for a lot of people, right? And there are there obviously is a shift towards people losing their religion. People they grew up Catholic and now they're atheist or, or whatever shift they've made in their life. Um, is there a shift towards that? I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not. Oh, I know in America I it seems so. difficult. Oh, I, mean, I know it seems difficult in America having seen <laughs> like bending through a Bush presidency. But in truth, <laughs> everything is actually going that way. There are far more people who admit oh. that they're atheist or even just agnostic now than previously. I, obviously, it's more so in Europe than in America, but it still is moving in that direction. And that's great to hear. I'm so and excited. while while atheists are still the most mistrusted people in America, it is moving in that direction. And we are giving up on on you know what some have have latched onto as community churches. Uh, why can't libraries become something like that, like the atheist version of the church? Not to say that there needs to be an organization or that people need religion, just that people need community. That would be that's a wonderful idea. I, 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 I'd love to believe in a world where that could happen. You're really strumming some some ideal some ideal chords today, Matt. Yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure why. I think I've just been <laughs> every every topic that's been brought up uh, has been just people complaining without offering solutions. I, 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 this is why I hate redesigns without being thoughtful. This is why I hate so much of the world is because it's just people <laughs> whining and not offering a, a viable <laughs> option in uh, contrary. Like, I guess this is the the bane of any creative person's existence. But if if all you hear is negative feedback without someone saying, well, what if it were better? What if it were this? What if it were that? There's almost – who gives a shit and what's the point? You just, it's just people stopping things with no nothing to replace them. If you're interested in supporting the On The Grid podcast, we have an interesting sponsorship model available. You can email us with your website, mobile application, maybe a logo or a poster, some sort of design work, and we will critique it on air, uh, both good and bad, which provides twofold value for you. One, you get some critical feedback on your thing to make it better. And two, you get some uh, ears that get to hear about your uh, your product. And we're going to try to be as honest as possible. So we're not going to hold back, but we're at least going to point some people into your website, to your app, whatever you want us to critique. And hopefully it's a work in progress so we have something to actually discuss. And it's not going to be something where we say, oh, you should use this blue or this texture or anything like that. But really just give it an honest critique to say, this is what our thoughts are. Maybe this could help you out. Maybe this will guide you towards a final solution. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call if you want to provide a short little description and some context. Uh, Our number is 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. And if you mail us, we'll send you rates and we'll tell you what we need from you. An image, so a little bit of context so we know what we're talking about. This came up on Twitter and it was the idea of critique versus you should do this. And I'm actually I'm actually interested to hear what you guys have to say because there is there is the, the this thing if if you're going to do critique in a class if you're going to do critique at your job or even if you're going to do critique at the at the web, I feel like a lot of times rather than getting an actual critique, you're going to get someone saying, "Well, you should have done this." And this is what I was complaining about seconds ago that not enough people are offering a real solution. But mm-hmm. <laughs> there mm-hmm. is, I mean, there is a problem of not actually discussing the issue at hand 
And I do, I mean, I do have a hard time with it because it is very difficult to not offer suggestions for what you want to do. If it's a very simple solution, like if it's a, an easily solved logo, you just want to tell them what to do rather than critique what's there. But what were your thoughts on that, Andy? This came up because I was, um, I was actually responding to some of the comments that were left uh, on our blog. So for people out there listening that are not aware, maybe this won't air until after we figure it all out. But we're, we're right now we're publishing all the like process and sketches for uh, our own iTunes artwork for the podcast and encouraging people to sort of give feedback on it. Um, and that in combination with you know some dribble comments and other sort of critique out there uh, just got me frustrated. The fact that people – I feel like the art of critique is, is a very – rarely understood and, and sort of elusive beast. Most people, when they think of critique, they just, you know, give you suggestions for, oh, maybe you should just try this, and wouldn't it be cool if you set it in Clarendon and all this other stuff, um, which is really not at all what critique is, and, and critique is something I think is really valuable. Um, and I, I do think it's a really important distinction. You were talking about how you know, people are going to complain about the fact that the public library is going through all these changes, and they're taking their books away, and, you know, things are, things are you know, at odds but they're not going to offer a solution for what they like to see done with the public space. Uh, and I agree with you there. I think when it comes to discussions like that, people should be offering solutions more than just complaining about whatever's happening. Uh, but when it comes to something like a you know technical design critique, uh, when you're speaking a, a language of design, that's something that's understood, uh, and you're working with something that's very much in process, um, that the conversation should be around having like thoughtful critique of what is actually before you and what you see, what it reminds you of, what it what it says, and then give that information to the person that is in fact in the driver's seat and let them do with it what they will. I think as designers, we are very often tempted to say, "Oh, if if I were you, if I was the person that was designing this, here's what I would do, and here's why," um, which I don't think is a beneficial conversation to have most of the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and this just goes goes back to my thing. I'm always harping on about how I feel like uh, critique just has a hard time. It seems that real critique can't really live on the web. At least I've not seen evidence yet that. Uh, that real criticism can exist, mm-hmm. at least in design on the web. It ends up always ends up being a sort of like circle jerk, ego maniac show. So, oh my God, this is the best dribble ever. Like, heart, heart. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it's just like the web is so impersonal. It's, it's so difficult, I think, for people to give real, thoughtful, critical feedback on something. Which is a shame, because as more of our communication does sort of make this transition over to being you know, through a screen in whatever form, whether it's in a chat room or through a podcast or on Dribble or on some blog, I feel like the way in which we're communicating is changing and not for the better. If we're losing the, the critical eye and the and the good sort of in-person critique, I know that you, like, you get a lot of that at work, Matt, which is great. Yep. I feel like that we're losing that in our online communication, which is bumming me out, man. You know, I work from home. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to find a way where I can get this outlet uh, for that sort of, that sort of part of my my professional development. Yeah, and I know we've touched on this, and obviously the problem is that by losing this personal contact, you lose the the connection that would make anything meaningful. And it is a obviously it's going to be a difficult thing to challenge and a difficult thing to restore. And I don't know if it's going to be. I guess I guess it could go two ways. The one way is that we just learn how to do this. We just learn that these text interactions or these audio only interactions are with other human beings, and that's how we deal with them. Or we have to make a, make a shift and find better ways to connect with people, which seems difficult mm-hmm. via current technology. So I don't – it's hard to – yeah, it's hard to see which evolves faster. It's kind of like our, is our technology going to evolve fast enough that we can make actual human connections or are we going to have to evolve with the technology so that we can learn to make human interactions via this existing medium? A good point is what you said that there's not really a, a connection with the context. 
of the stuff that you're making. And I think like that's that's the most crucial part, especially when you're sitting in college, you know, at a university, and the the students are with you through the entire process of making a logo, so they get to see it from beginning to end. Where you know, if you're on Dribble, they they literally only see a second snapshot of what you're working on without any sort of context or background or, or any of the other stuff that you toil over all day. So I think it's not a problem of the people. I think it's just a matter of introducing that content with the stuff that you're presenting so that they have a better idea of what's going on. Yeah, I think it is possible, you know, in other formats and other, like on a blog or something, to show, you know, the process behind something and to tell the entire story and to give appropriate context uh, to allow for, you know, true critique. I think, I think that to assume that the audience is not going to be willing to invest the time uh, online to absorb that, to give real, you know, critical feedback is is a, a missed opportunity. It's a shame to assume that people aren't going to, mm. you know, take a time to really care about the context. Well, what Dan touched on, I think, is interesting, and it made me think of models like studio mates or, or places where designers yeah. decide to get together, whether they work together or not, just so they can be working in a place with other designers. And just by default, that means that you have other people who have been with you through the process. And I think it probably has more to do with time than it has to do with background and context. Like you're automatically going to get that background Mm -hmm. and context because you've been with that person through this period of time. And then you can just turn to them and say, what do you think of this? And they're already going to be a little bit more prepared to talk to you about it. The thing that you mentioned, Danny, is like being able to provide context on a blog, being able to provide something else on a blog. You're taking so much extra time out of your day that you would otherwise be spending with family, doing something you want to, doing something else you want to do, doing something that you have a little bit more contact with. It is, I mean, that is difficult. I don't know that you can ask people to, to go that far with it. Why, if I'm just being myself and some designer who I don't even know wants my critique from their blog, why do I care? I really don't see a good reason to unless I have a personal connection to that. Yeah, fair enough. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It is asking a lot for sure. I hate to assume that nobody will want to put in that time. I, I wouldn't ever make the assumption that most people that you know arrive at the page should be willing to invest that time. And if they're not, then screw them. But to not make it available to whatever small chunk of the population that is willing to sort of go to those lengths to make a real connection and give some real feedback um, would be a shame. And I don't want to harp on this, but I do think it's important – I mean, this show, I expect this show as we progress to largely be about, you know, critique to some degree uh, of what's going on in the world of design. Um, I just, I just want to, like, sort of lay a groundwork for, you know, our understanding of design and our audience's understanding of critique uh, and how we're going to be talking about these things. No, no, I think it's fair, too, because it's it's going to be a major point of, of things that we talk about. And obviously, like, a lot of what we're doing on the show is critiquing things. So I don't want to I don't want to minimize that. But I do. I am interested in in what you're talking about in in online communities and and potentially even trying to solve that problem at some point. The, I guess the main issue too is, let's say you do find some people to who are willing to invest this time. I feel like the demand is going to be so much higher than the supply. How do you decide what actually gets critiqued? Like what what's important work? Why is something important? Maybe we should just turn, maybe all, every library should just become a, a big co-working space for designers to show up and just work all the time. That's the best way it should be. Sold. <laughs> there's, there's actually one last thing I want to talk about that came up today uh, that I didn't have time to put in the top of the doc. Um, did you guys see that uh, Jack Chang announced he's trying to kickstart a novel he's written? Did it, did it you guys see any of that? I didn't, chance? but go ahead and explain that this is no. a new issue. 
Yeah, so Jack Chang is a writer, designer. He co-founded Memberly, which is a New York startup that sort of helps... Uh, it builds a system for people to do membership-based, subscription-based uh, sort of programs. But he's a he's a fantastic technology writer. Um, he's been writing about issues of design and technology for a long time. And he came with Kickstarter today and announced that he had, has, in fact, been writing a novel, a fiction novel, uh, for the past couple of years that he wants to now get published. Um, I thought it was really interesting because he's sort of taking the same themes he's always applied to his, you know, very practical, yeah, beautiful writing about technology and, de- and design, uh, but he's sort of, you know, woven these uh, ideas and concepts into a fiction novel. Uh, and and the, the setting of the novel, it's, it's about a guy that works for a company that designs the fake computer interfaces that go on the computers at Ikea. Yeah. Um, and then he meets a girl that doesn't have a cell phone. Worlds collide. I, I'm sure it gets, you know, beautiful and whatnot. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting to see somebody sort of taking... Um, I, I guess what it remind, what it made me think of is that I forget so often that Twitter and Facebook and all this like little shit that we deal with every day is actually like that's kind of our culture now. He's writing this novel, this fiction novel that's you know got Twitter in it and it's got you know all these things that are you know I, I assume were so temporal, but in actuality like that's what that's in a lot of ways what our culture of our generation is. Um, and it's interesting to see a fiction novel written about these themes. And I'm really excited to see how it comes out. That's interesting you bring it up. I was wondering kind of where what I would latch on to as you explain this. And what I what I was thinking of is that these themes, Twitter, people using Facebook, I'm, I'm sure it's coming up in mo- novels more often. But even just in my own life, just the, the way I speak about things, I feel like so often I try to censor these little pieces out of it. Like yeah, even just exactly. explaining – okay, so we're, we're working on the intro for this show. It was a big leap for me to say we call each other on Skype and have a conversation. Do, do you yeah. know what I mean by that? It's yeah. no, I, I I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it's being so transparent about the technology that you're using. It's almost like you need to genericize everything so everybody can have an understanding. But we are getting to this cultural mass where people can have understanding of these very specific technology related things. Yeah, and it's not the same as saying like I hopped in my Datsun and drove down to the drive-in, like because this is a very unique thing. When you a, a Skype or Twitter or Facebook uh, are these big, you know, massive institutions, and in a lot of ways. They reach more people than any other institution that previously was, you know, one of the pillars of a culture because of just their extremely broad, you know, reach. I do wonder if this, too, is something that's maybe unique to our generation as technology moves so fast. I almost have this guilt of mentioning these somewhat – what I would – I used to consider somewhat obscure technologies to people. I, you know, trying to explain a podcast, I would maybe explain it as a radio show or something so people don't think I'm such a nerd or, or even just so I don't seem like I'm yeah, coming no. off as, as, I don't know, just being obscure for no reason. But it seems like this was not really an issue previously. I, I guess it comes from – being a combination of things moving so quickly and the pie just getting whacked up so much. Like previously, uh, uh, any major invention that that's spread throughout the United States or spread throughout the world so much that you could un- you could have a conversation with about somebody else is just mainstream. But I it, it, I don't think that's the way it is anymore. Even if if you watch a TV show, uh, very few people can actually say they watch the same TV show as their friends or as their parents. It's kind of like I think of some of these more ephemeral uh, sort of you know, internet things as kind of being like pet rock phenomenons where, you know, like the pet rock was a thing for a very short period of time. I mean, it still exists, but it was really a hot ticket item, this like phenomenon for a little while. And then it like petered out and it was this little stupid frivolous like idea, which is in a lot of ways really similar to a lot of these, you know, shitty like MySpace, you know, sort of uh, ideas that, you know, MySpace is pretty much totally irrelevant now, but for like a couple of years, it was a big deal. 
Uh, and I, I always mm-hmm. think that's going to be ephemeral. That's going to be forgotten by history. But then I look at the Pet Rock and, oh, that wasn't forgotten by history. Maybe MySpace is going to be important to history and people talking about it. And I, I guess it probably will be. And that's the sort of ideas that the idea of writing a fiction novel about these sort of really contemporary themes brought to mind, which I think is why I'm so interested in, uh, in what he's doing with this book. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it because it's almost a point of documentation for where we're on, where we are in life. Because if we, you know, constantly removed ourselves from the technology or the the whatever that we're using, and didn't write books about it, or didn't write any other sort of thing, or, or you know, make movies that had this technology in it then there's no documentation for hundreds of years down the road to say that we actually did use this thing all the time and it was really relevant. Obviously, it is going to make for novels that are like very quickly dated, which in things like music, I do have a problem with. And, and in things like design, if it's so easily dated, I do tend to think of it as less valuable. But I guess it's, it is it can mm-hmm. be kind of unavoidable um, and maybe even explains some of this hipster culture where everything has to be like a callback to some previous thing. Everything has to be this this fake vintage whatever because maybe that's where you find meaning because everything now passes so quickly. How do you even latch on to it? That's interesting. Yeah, well, you dated you dated yourself by saying I did hipster, date myself by, by saying hipster, but it's Wait, not. Is hipster over? <laughs> is the idea of hipster over? Am I, am I too old? Or I missed that. I mean I can just say postmodernism and, and let it last a little bit longer. But the idea of having to reference the oh, past sure. to make any sort of to, – to, for anything to have any meaning, it's, I mean it's very much what we've been talking about throughout the episode. I wonder if that – if we'll just keep doing that even more and more and more because we can't latch on to anything or if we just give up on it and say, forget it. We live – it's almost, we live like dogs. Everything is immediate. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting idea. Like people this. sort of clinging to something that's been around for even as few as you know twenty or thirty years because that has a more sense of uh, historical importance and permanence than all the stuff we deal in every day, which is all relatively new. I, I mean, I do. I think we are maybe uh, uniquely a group of people. Not 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 like too uniquely, but. We are a pretty unique group of people that probably embrace the future pretty quickly. Anytime we bring up things on the show that are about big changes, about things that people hold dear, we usually tend to go towards the idea of progression and discounting some of the public outcry that that is so common. I don't know. It, it would be interesting to hear the other side of this where – do you have that side of your brain that says everything is frivolous and nothing has meaning anymore because of this quick pace? <laughs> <laughs> this got super dark. <laughs> we are like three twenty-something white guys, so I, I think our opinions are kind of closely tied together. Maybe we need old people. <laughs> Don't marginalize me, Dan. <laughs> Don't you marginalize my opinion and clump me in with all you white people. No, so, so here's, here's what I think, Matt. In response to what you said, I appreciate innovation. Obviously, I try to be forward-thinking as much as possible, but there are a few things that are as distasteful to me as like forced innovation in a field that does not need it. So for example, mm. I am a big, I'm, I'm a big bicycle fan. Uh, I like to build bicycles, ride bicycles. Uh, and in my mind, like the bicycle as a form of transportation, uh, basic fundamental simple form of transportation was pretty much perfected somewhere around the sixties and seventies. Uh, and now people have been trying to, you know, iterate on it and change it and, you know, update it in my mind frivolously. I think I've spent a lot of time – I'm very much an insider in the bike culture. I've spent too much time reading blogs and, and looking at parts on eBay. So I'm, I'm very much super biased to a specific type of you know cycling history. But if you look at the idea of a folding bike, people are like, oh, we need folding bikes because a regular bike is just too big. 
what is a regular bike too big for? Like, you can bring it inside your house, you can take it inside your office, but people somehow got it in their minds when you needed folding bikes, and there's this whole movement around that, and they sacrifice all of the beautiful, simple geometry that evolved over time with regular bicycles, this new sort of innovation, I say in air quotes. I feel the same way about, like, shoes, except for athletic shoes. There's room there for, you know, crazy science innovation. Right. But And, like, fundamental, like, things that have been around forever, I often think that the best solution is a very simple one with quality craftsmanship and good materials, in, 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 as opposed to over-engineering and over-innovating. So I, I, I do, in that sense, sort of see the appeal of uh, things that have been around for a long time. And that's why I like steel bicycles instead of carbon fiber or aluminum or titanium bikes, because it's something that's time-tested. There's nothing wrong with it, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily need to be innovated upon any further. This is a feeling I've been having really recently, as I've just had a recent move. And uh, you realize how much of your life was bought to be disposed of and how you're going to have to do this same cycle again and then how you're going to have to do the same cycle again because so much of our lives is, you know, when you buy Ikea furniture, that's not meant to be around for that long and it breaks down very quickly. And I'm sure people 100 years ago had much better beds than I have right now. They were more expensive. They took more time, but they Mm -hmm. were a higher quality item. And I don't know if that's me romanticizing something too much, but but certainly no, I think you're right. There was there was an idea of craft that that you were talking about with the bike. It is disheartening to watch the things that you thought were part of your life so quickly leave you, and you have no thought for them. But then again, on the flip side, you know, it is just an object, and and how attached to an object should you really get? Oh, I, th- I think you can get really attached to objects. I, I think we really value things like movies and art and music and all these things in our culture, and we can get really attached to them, and that's considered to be okay and, and you know, really a rewarding relationship. And in my mind, I, I have no problem getting just as attached to an object, which I think you can have a much more intimate relationship with in many times than, you know, some piece of art uh, that's sort of removed from you. Uh, and, and all the same considerations that go into, you know, making a piece of music or a, or a good movie, I think, are in a, an object as well, especially if it's something like a bicycle, which you ride every single day, and you have this sort of utilitarian relationship with, and it, it facilitates something you wouldn't be able to do without it, or, you know, a, a guitar, some instrument that you have that allows you to create music, and you have, a, a, you know, history with that instrument and the way you have grown and, and gotten better at playing it. And So I, I, I think that objects... I really value the role that objects play in my life. I see them as just as significant you know, culturally as a movie or a piece of music or a, a great play. The, the relationship uh, that people have with an object is obviously something designers have been working on for a long time and something that they see as very important. And I know that obviously we need to find healthy balances, but I'm assuming you guys have seen the show Hoarders or if you have <laughs> had some experience <laughs> with that. Yeah. And that oh, is like yeah. the extreme of people attaching so much meaning to objects, and it is absolutely a problem. Not to say that every single human that has an, an attachment to an object is going to be that way, but you, you do realize at the end of the day that these relationships are actually kind of meaningless, and designing objects to be to attach so much to people, are you really just taking a part out of their life that should be dedicated to like human attachments, maybe attachments to bigger ideas, or... Is that really valuable and pe- these people are just pushing it too far and the, the conclusion is right, they just have done it too much? Right when you said guitar, Andy, I was about to flip a shit. Uh, that is the one thing, like, I, you know, I don't do DVDs, I don't do CDs, I don't do any of that antiquated crap because I know <laughs> I can get it digitally. But when it comes to my guitar, there's uh, one company, I'm not going to... You're not going to buzz market for them. 
Well, yeah, like Line 6 has done this thing where they said, well, we've taken the electric guitar and basically put all the presets in the guitar and not in the amp. And I was crying sacrilege when I saw this because I love the fact that my guitars have two volume knobs, two tone knobs, and you could switch between the pickups and that's it. And then you you do the rest of the science on the amp. I mean, it's been that way for... And it's not a broken system. Yeah. And, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of going back to the whole shard thing where there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been there for a long time. And somebody come in, will come in and say, well, we've done it this way. It could be better. You know, if anything is progressive, I, I turned into that grumpy local that says you can't change my Gibson. Right, which is, which is funny because yeah. they're not. But I'm inter- I'm glad we're seeing this other side so we can have this other conversation because I don't want to just be like – I don't want everything to just be the one side of us talking about everything has to be moving forward and moving forward. I'm glad we have these connections to these things that we can play the the public outcry part of it. So, Dan, nobody's taking mm-hmm. away your Gibson. You still get to have that Gibson, and I'm sure they're going to keep making their SGs and their Les Pauls and whatever whatever your favorite guitar might be. Just one company happens to be changing the idea of it. So what are you worried about? You know, it's that worry that it's going to start with one company and, you know, another one's going to parody that or come up with another idea with technology where, uh, I mean, it, being a gearhead, when there's the, the tonal quality and all this sort of thing through tubes, you know, the old-fashioned tube amps, um, the idea that all that's going to be swept away by solid-state, crappy heads and, and cabinets and all this other crap, the quality of, of the sound itself is lost. I think that's the one thing that I'm fearful for. And this is actually a really interesting point you made, Matt, that here I do find myself on the opposite side of the argument that I made, you know, for the Shard, uh, in that I, I do think that the Shard is great and they should, you know, try and make the most innovative architecture they can damn the skyline just put it up there in 100 years that's going to be the traditional thing that people are going to be complaining that they're replacing with something else but at the same time the idea of you know there's companies out there that now make acoustic guitars out of carbon fiber because apparently carbon fiber is lighter and it can like go in the rain and that's supposed to make a better guitar and that's the kind of thing i'm like i'm totally like detested by like i can't like that that idea is is kind of disgusting to me and it's a very fine line there Hearing Dan talk about tube tube amps and you know all this history of like electric guitars and like the golden age of a real good like tube amp and how now computers can get like ninety five percent as good for way less money and therefore they're largely sort of replacing those more analog solutions. I think it's something we see sort of across the board uh, in a lot of fields. And what it comes down to is, it sounds like Dan that you're really invested uh, in this you know electric guitar sort of amplifier culture and you spend a lot of time reading about it and. It's intimate to you, so you can recognize the difference between a tube amp and the 95% is good computer that's way cheaper. And you said something before, Matt, about how you know designers spend a lot of time trying to design objects that you know have a really strong relationship with the end customer, the user. And I think that's true, but I also think that designers these days spend even more time being concerned about cost of production and some other outside factors that they're not putting the relationship with the object and the overall quality necessarily at the forefront. So I think it's interesting that uh, when it comes to uh, a good acoustic guitar, you can get you know 80% as good with you know laminate crappy wood that costs a tenth as much. So for most instances, it makes sense just to make you know laminate instead of solid wood because most people can't tell the difference. Right. Uh, and the same goes for the tube mm-hmm. amps, and the same goes for you know bicycles made out of aluminum instead of you know actual steel, uh, and, and all these things. I do think that in a lot of ways, uh, technology is causing more of these things to be replaced by the almost as good analogs, but also the community that is left that still supports, you know, the authentic original thing 
now, thanks to the internet, we can be really connected with each other and we can still have a really vibrant community around solid wood acoustic guitars, around, you know, steel bicycles. So I think in a lot of ways, these sort of niche communities are actually really benefiting from this march of progress uh, in a sort of backwards way. I wonder if, in reality, these niche communities are the exact same size as they've always been, and we're just adding more people who are interested in this topic, just maybe to a lesser degree. Like, are there the same amount of quality guitars being made, the same amount of people that are interested in quality guitars, just there happen to also be poorly made guitars and people playing them poorly and caring only a little bit about them? And that's what the out, that's what the real outrage is about. Because Dan, do you have any less access to a beautiful guitar if you want it? And has anything really changed? No, I mean, if anything, over the years, it's actually been easier to find stuff like that. Because at one point, you'd have to go to a specialty shop that had a particular, you know, grade of guitars. I but now make. you have the internet, the world's greatest specialty shop for all things. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like you could just jump on musicians, friend, find everything that you need, and and go on with right. your daily life. Which, so in reality, what I think maybe what people are reacting to is just there are more people taking the topic less seriously as opposed to fewer people taking the topic more seriously. Or actually, what it might be yeah. is more that everybody is more aware of everybody else than they ever were before. That's probably... I, so, th- I think we're kind of saying the same thing, but yeah, I think, yes, that. It's the feeling exclusive, like you have your own little club, and it gets ruined when a bunch of people Right, find it's out. like a filmmaker getting mad at YouTube. I don't know that there are any less great filmmakers. There are just a lot more bad ones. And some really great ones you discover through these really weird mediums, too. I, I think maybe culturally yeah. it actually is an overall benefit. It's just a lot of noise in between. Potentially, I think it's just something we have to get better at, at filtering through our brains. That may be the best like yeah. summary of the internet I've ever heard. Culture, culturally, <laughs> it's overall a benefit, but there is just so much stuff in between. It's a really beautiful summary you've got there, Matt. been on the grid episode two thanks for listening thanks to girlfriends for the music who i recently learned is just one person you can email us at mail at on the you can also give us a call and leave us a message 973 on grid 2 which is 973-664-7432 go ahead and leave us a message and we might play it on the show also if you want to suggest topics tweet us at hashtag on the grid until next week